pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Rock is a Hard Place, our podcast where we, we feature upcoming and independent bands and all of the things that go into making it in music. And this time around, we are joined by Johnny Jensen. How are you? Hey, Spence. What's happening? Well, it's great to speak with you. I have so many questions. I'm surprised because you've been around a little while now, since I think the early 2000s. I'm surprised I haven't heard of you guys yet. And and we'll, we'll talk more about the band and where your situation is now in just a second. But maybe give a little, a little back history of how you started. I know the, the Tattooed Millionaires is a part of that and kind of explain a little back history about you and in music so far. Well, I was born in 1720 in Virginia, part of the original colonists who came to America, uh, turned into a vampire shortly after, and here I am. No, seriously, I grew up in New York, a little kid on Long Island. I uh, got started in music in the 80s and played in bands in New York City, eventually made my way out to L.A., and kind of my claim to fame in the underground was hooking up with uh, Corey Clark, who was in a band called Warrior Soul. We started a band called Space Age Playboys out in L.A., which was the big thing for a minute. Uh, you know, we were playing the cool gigs. We got a record out. We went to Europe, and then the band self-destructed. It was a lot like the Sex Pistols. Um, when we weren't playing great shows, we were trying to kill each other. And eventually, we all made back to L.A., and then I started Tattoo Millionaires kind of from the smoldering wreckage of Space Age Playboys. But, you know, Space Age Playboys is out there on the Internet. People can check it out. Um, it was great music for the time. Acid Punk. And we were making it into all the magazines and had a top ten song across Europe. But that was then and this is now. So Tattoo Millionaires, it ran its course. Um, we were big in the early days of MySpace and sold a bunch of records to all our fans. It was really great. We were pocketing money hand over fist, don't tell the IRS. We bought a Silver Eagle tour bus that once belonged to Leonard Skinner, and some people may remember that. It seemed like it broke down more than we played shows, but it got us around the country for a while, and Tattoo Millionaires kind of ran its course. I played in a couple other bands during that time, and eventually now here we are, Johnny Jetson. So that's it in a nutshell. I left out all the, the sex and drug abuse. <laughs> How did you end up in Minnesota? Because I was, you know, I came across your song. Actually, it was through uh, Tim Binder. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I'm checking you out. And, you know, we gave it a spin in our Mosh competition. And we, we actually play the song as, as well. We're talking about I Believe in Rock and Roll. But it, I'm like, well, how did this guy end up here in Minnesota? Yeah, good question. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, I was on the road playing in a band. We played a show in, in Minneapolis. There was a falling out, and they left me here. So I've been trying to, you know, get things together, and maybe I'll make it back to L.A. I don't know. But I love the Twin Cities. Minneapolis has got a great, you know, music and art scene and history. It's not just the home of 
prints, but replacements and who's could do. And I've always been attracted to kind of the alternative and underground stuff. I mean, I love all, all rock and roll and in all its forms, but hey, there's a lot worse places I could have ended up than Minneapolis, I'll tell you that. So the now, ba- if you really want to know the truth, yeah. <laughs> out in L.A., I met a girl from Minnesota, and we got married. We had a little boy and realized it was maybe time to get out of L.A. There were a lot of crazy things happening in our neighborhood. You know, if you don't have a tremendous amount of money in Los Angeles, you know, and live behind a gated community up in the hills, you know, it can be a little bit of a wild west out there. So we had a little boy and decided to move back to her hometown in Minnesota and raise my little boy. He's eight now. And, uh, well, you know, I mean, if you, if you never had a kid, you really don't know what love is. I thought I knew what love is just having a good time partying and having a hot wife. But then I had a little boy and everything changed. So for the better, but it also took some time, you know, took me out of the game for a little bit. Now he's old enough to realize that if anything happens to me on the road, if the bus goes over the hill and I die in a fiery plane crash, at least he knew he had a dad how much his dad loved him. So he's encouraged me to get back into rock and roll. He's a little rocker himself. And uh, it wasn't that long ago where he said, Dad, why aren't you playing in a band anymore? I said, well, you know, I mean, I like to spend my time with you. And he's like, well, I'd like to see you get back out there and play, Dad, because you seem miserable sitting here all the time. Part of the inspiration of getting back into rock and roll is doing what you love. And he reminded me what I what was missing. So that's why I'm back. I believe in rock and roll is the first song off the solo record. And, you know, I wanted to put that out there for all those people that believe and have always believed. Even when the trends have changed and the social networking platforms have changed, one thing's remained consistent in a lot of people's lives, and that's the music they love and the music they grew up with. So I'm just hoping to, you know, add my little piece to the pot and rock with as many people that still want to rock and roll. Well, tell me about the sound of the band, because when you when you listen to this, and when you kind of had, I, I don't I want to, because when you had some success in the early 2000s, like commercial radio probably didn't, you know, approach that sound, that kind of a, a punk style, a straight-up rock and roll, a little bit of a punk edge to it back in the early 2000s. Now, I think, times have changed a little bit. You're you're hearing more, uh, you're hearing more of that little, little classic older straight up rock and roll little touch of the Ramones in their sound again. What was the reaction when you guys were first kind of you know getting to do this back in the early 2000s? What was the re- reaction of record labels and some some radio some radio people? Right. Well, the reaction of the band has always been positive. I think a lot of ha- that has to do with the look and the marketing, you know. Um Tattoo Million at Space Age Playboys had a cool look, a cool vibe. It was kind of underground, but was big in Europe where they haven't forgotten and they support bands that aren't necessarily mainstream. Um, the reaction to, to Tattoo Millionaires, we were four guys, good-looking guys, relatively good-looking. I surrounded myself with younger, good-looking dudes. Everyone had cool haircuts. We took off our shirts, kind of copped the MC5 vibe, and chicks loved it. Radio, you know, the uh, radio 
didn't love it so much, but Rodney on the Rock out in L.A. played our songs. You know, there's been that support from the people that have a kind of a long view back. You know, if they can still appreciate Iggy and the Stooges and the MC5 for what they did in the early days, if they still love those early Kiss records and, and the Ramones and, you know, the first record from Motley Crue, they found something to like in our band, you know. I've always kind of felt like we got reviews in those early days like, oh, it sounds like, you know, Molly Crew meets the Ramones at David Bowie's house, you know, and it's kind of, it sounds like the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, and that's kind of what I wanted to be, just timeless. Um, but I think, like you said, you know, it's kind of coming around now. What's old is new again. You know, the big wheel keeps turning. It turns slow. But during this time, there's always been great bands. They were coming out of Sweden, Backyard Babies and the Helicopters, and the Hives had the big garage band sound of that early 2000s, you know? So I think it's always been there. It's always been great. It just gets overshadowed by the big money that plays the game in the mainstream media. Tell me about the sound of your band in particular, including uh, this new track, I believe in rock and roll, when you're setting up, and I, I love the vocals, I love your, the sound of your voice, is there a, a setup or a, a mic setup that you have in mind to, to kind of get that sound? Do you, do you look to, to find mics and things that have a little bit of a, a retro vibe sound to them? Well, I do have like a collection of like cheap plastic mics, you know, stuff I find at garage sales or whatever, interesting mics, and I played a, a little bit with them on some tracks, but really, you know, I always thought that, oh, I need to get a good vocal mic. I need to have a, you know, professional this or that, or, you know, an expensive studio mic. And eventually I had one and then it fell one day and broke. <laughs> and so I was out, you know, a few hundred bucks and kind of bumming out. And then I remember reading something about Tom Petty. Who, I'm a big fan of Tom Petty, his songwriting, you know, stripping it down to the basics. And I remember him saying that he just sang through an SM57. And that's what I always go back to. When I sing, making those records, I'm holding it in my hand, holding the mic in my hand, like a front man would on stage. I don't hold it in my hand when I play live because I'm playing guitar too. But, you know, similar to the way a front man would be, I'm in my studio. I got my SM57 in my hand with the cord wrapped around my hand. And I just have fun with it. I've done the studio thing with the pop screen, you know, and the big mic, and I guess the sound is cleaner and more professional sounding, but it isn't my sound. So what you're hearing is just a guy with an SM57 close up to my face. I put it right up to my lips when I sing. That's the style. It doesn't sound much different than when I talk. To say I was a singer, I think, would be a stretch. I became a front man out of necessity because it got to the point where the bands I was in, the front men were like complaining about having to carry their microphone to rehearsal. You know, it just got ridiculous. There's a certain front man thing. Anyone that's ever been in a band with a spoiled, rotten front man understands what I'm talking about. Very few of them want to help the drummer set up his drums or move his drums. And it gets like, ah, oh, the front man, spoiled, rotten guy. Never wanted to be that guy always want to be like the sound man at a club's favorite guy, easy to set up, not un, not demanding, 
But as far as the studio sounds and the vocals, that's an SM57. Sometimes I'll use my 58, you know, like if I'm, because I put it right up to my mouth, so, hey, I could be eating a burrito and then go record a song, and, you know, the top of the microphone gets all dirty and crusty and stuff, <laughs> so I'll put it to the side and grab the 58, you know, in between cleaning up mics and stuff. So 57 or 58 held close, close to my lips. You want to know the full setup? Um, I plug it into uh, Alf Aphex tube essence for my preamp and I've got a a Ramsa a Panasonic Ramsa 16 track board it's a pretty basic setup yeah. well very cool I, I, I like it a lot I like the sound that, that you have we're, we're talking with Johnny Jensen and tell me about when you were a kid what's the what's the first band that you like absolutely fell in love with Geez, I got started early in music. I mean, like a lot of people did. Um, my parents were hippies, so there's always been, was music in the house. And at a young age, maybe three years old, yeah, uh, my aunt went away to college. And my I grew up with my grandparents and my aunt, too, because my mom was single mom for a while when my my dad left which I think is a story that a lot of musicians share. You know, your dad splits when you're young. You've got no dad. What do you do? You find rock and roll, and you try to prove yourself and get over that hump of loss. But it was very early on. My aunt went to college. I was about three years old, and she gave me a record player and her 45s. Her 45s were all the Beatles and the Beach Boys, you know, the swirl, yellow, orange label 45. Whenever I see one of those, I get nostalgic for it because that's the first things I played with. As soon as I discovered music and records, there was no need for toys anymore. I didn't grow up with a lot of toys or like needing the, the new toy of the day. There may be some Hot Wheels cars, you know, stuff you get at your birthday when kids, people don't know what to get you, but all I wanted was records. So I guess the first thing I discovered music-wise was Beatles and the Beach Boys, um, the 50s stuff, Elvis, and loved it. I carried that record player with me everywhere I went. I had my little record player and a little 45 holder. Um, it wasn't long after that that my mom hooked up with my stepdad. He was a huge Creedence Clearwater Revival fan, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. So by age four and the five, you know, I was like cleaning the seeds out of the marijuana at my, my parents' parties when I was four and five years old, you know, off of those record covers when they first came out. When Jimi Hendrix died in 71, geez, I was only like three or four. I had a full-size Jimi Hendrix poster that one of my, my hippie parents' friends gave me, a full-size Jimi Hendrix poster on my door in my room. I was like four years old. And I remember playing Jimi Hendrix records and crying that he was dead when I was a little, very young person. So music has always been there. Um, my stepdad, it's funny, I related a story on Facebook recently when I was about four or five years old. My stepdad grabbed me by the collar of my shirt and he must have been on Quaaludes or drunk or on drugs or something because he screamed in my face that the Rolling Stones are the greatest rock and roll band in the world. 
that's never left me. I don't think the Rolling Stones are the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Now, obviously, one of the greatest, and musical legacy thinks for itself. We're going back here, you know, we're going back to an era where the Rolling Stones were six or eight years old, you know? Mm-hmm. No one thought, I don't think anyone thought then that they'd be still playing 50 years later. But at the, at the time, in 1972, 73, the Rolling Stones were a big deal. Now, my mom got me in the glam. My mom was a teacher and came home. She was a chaperone at her high school uh, prom, for her graduating class prom, whatever. And down the hall from where they were having her prom, she heard interesting music. Walked down the hallway and discovered the New York Dolls playing a class prom. She got me in, in, into glam rock, David Bowie, T-Rex. She took me into New York City to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show before the movie came out. So I had a young, intense upbringing with rock and roll. Very cool. Do you, do you remember the first song that you sang in front of a group of people or an audience? Well, I remember being real young, putting my guitar on the roof of my house and standing on the roof of my house and playing to my neighbors. And a little group group of neighbors would gather on the street and watch me jump around on the roof. <laughs> so that would be, I guess, my earliest public performance. I was also Underwear Man, famous for being Underwear Man. <laughs> and this is the 70s. I grew up in the 70s, so streaking was a big thing. So I remember having a streakers club. I lived on the beach on Long Island. And the initiation was you had to take your bathing suit off and throw it out on the crowded beach and then run and get it through the crowd of people. And then you could join my streakers club. And we played rock and roll. And we streaked. <laughs> it was the 70s. Crazy. But fun. Did you did you get a round of applause when you were playing and jumping around on the roof? Did anybody say, hey, good job? Of course. I, I mean, it was, it was a great time, you know. They all thought I was a, a rock star back when I was, you know, seven or eight years old. It was a fun place to be. My stepdad would take me to the local bar and give me a you know, pocket full of change to play the jukebox and I would jam, you know, uh, Wang Dang, Sweet Poo Tang from Ted Nugent and Cheap Trick and Kiss on the jukebox and I'd jam the air guitar and the crowd in the bar would clap and cheer me on. It was fun. It was fun, it was fun until it got to the point where the parents were like, okay, you've had your fun, now what are you going to do with your life? And, you know, right out of Twisted Sister video, what do you mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to rock. Aren't I a rock star? Didn't you create a rock star? <laughs> what do you mean, what am I going to do? Work at Taco Bell? Well, maybe now that Taco Bell's offering a hundred grand a year. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. We're talking with Johnny Jetson, and I, just listening to some of your stuff, I love it, and some of the, watching some of the videos, as I get ready for to do this interview with you, I'm like, I, I wonder, I, are you a car guy? I am a car guy, I guess. Car culture, you know, it's American. It's part of rock and roll. I've owned some great cars. I wish I could have held on to all the cars we had. Like many guys out there, I wish I had my first car still. I, you know, I, What was the car? Do you remember? Obviously you do. What, what car was it? Well, the first first car that was a hand-me-down, you know, I got my license when I was 15 and a half, and, and I had to have someone older. I had some older friends that would drive around with me, you know, because you needed someone that was 18. 
to drive around. Uh, that first car was a 72 Cadillac Sedan DeVille in gold with the flying lady hood ornament, white top. And I would take this car out after school. And I had a friend whose dad owned the local lumber yard. And he found out how to get into his dad's safe. So he was always flush with cash. <laughs> and he would give me, for about six weeks, one school year, he would give me $100 each day fill the tank of the Cadillac and take him out riding. He would buy the bag of weed and pile all my friends into the car, drive to some secluded spot by the golf course and party up. And, I mean, nothing like cramming a cattle, old Cadillac full of your friends. I mean, that's what, how many videos have we seen with the dudes driving the Cadillac with all their friends in it? I mean, <laughs> I was living that life at 16. It was a lot of fun. Um, the first car I bought... On my own was a 72 Camaro RS with a 400 small block. It was in that blue with the white racing stripes, oh, white yeah. interior. Sure. It was a fun car. We've had a lot, a lot of fun times in the fun cars. Um, right now, I've got a lot of projects. We've got a 65 Barracuda sitting in the garage on blocks. That's going to get some attention this spring. Uh, 63 Riviera. That was made on the first day of production, first year of production. It was it's number one ninety seven off the line of the two hundred thousand they built that year. Wow. Yep, that's an interesting car. I just saw my K five Blazer. I mean, you know, Mankato, Minnesota. I mean, what better truck to have than a K five? But <laughs> it needed a lot of work, and it was ready to pass on to someone that was going to take it to that level. My daily driver, believe it or not, through a Minnesota winter is is an eighty two Berlinetta. Camaro, which is what they made kind of a girl's car, the six-cylinder. Not to make any light of girls because girls are hot rod, too, and girls are fast and there's awesome girls, too. But at the time, in the 80s, they called it the girl's version of the Camaro because it was the six-cylinder. But I'll tell you, man, that car gets a lot of thumbs up. And, you know, like it's, it's kind of like with the music. You know, it's old is new again. People give me thumbs up and compliments on that old Camaro all the time. And it's cool that it's almost 40 years old and it's still driving around. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for the time and effort that went in to build these things and like to keep old stuff going. Well, I'll tell you, I tell you what, Johnny, it's like rock and roll cars and women. That's three of the, some of the best things in life. Gas cars and girls, right? Who sang about that? Was it the, the Dick Dictators? <laughs> that I don't hot know. cars and girls. Oh God! Now you got that song in my head. Seventies <laughs> punk song. <laughs> Sorry hot, about that. <laughs> hot cars and girls. It's all right. I mean, some people view that as being shallow. You know, some people like it's all about the music. It's all about the music. It's all about the song. It, to me, it's not all about the music, and it's not all about the song. Obviously, it's important to have good music and a catchy song, but it's also about the attitude and honoring kind of the culture of rock and roll. You know, free at one time, people used to get it. Like, rock and roll was freedom. Freedom from oppressive, right? Oppression. Like, whether it's Absolutely. the government or social norms. You know, we want to cut loose. We want to live. We want to be free. We want to rock and roll. And it's become kind of cliche, and you know, as as big business has taken over rock and roll, it's kind of 
downplay that aspect of it, but I still believe that rock and roll is about freedom and, and you know, to do what we want to do and go where we want to go. So tell me what's next for you. You have a single out, I Believe in Rock and Roll. Is that going to be a part of an EP, a full CD at some point? Are you going to do some touring? What are the plans that you have? Well, the plan is that I have a record coming out April 20th of 2020. It's called Make Your Move. I Believe in Rock and Roll is the first single, you know, kind of pre preview of what the record is. The record is being mixed mastered by Adam Hamilton, who people may remember from being in L.A. Guns. He's out in L.A., and he's done a lot of great stuff with music. Look him up, Adam Hamilton, and very talented person. He's actually going to play drums on the record, too. And then there'll be some touring overseas. I've got some tours in the work for the U.K., England, Scotland, and Wales, and I have a band over there that'll back me up and then I'm going to look towards America. You know, I, I've, I beat my, beat my brains touring America. I've traveled it high and low and I love it. The distances are big and the paychecks aren't. So it, it gets, it gets tough, but I'm going to do some like flying stuff. You know, I have mm-hmm. some friends in New York who are going to back me up with the band. So I'll fly over to New York and play some shows. I got some friends in LA who are going to back me up. All great musicians and good-looking dudes who are going to be part of the band. So I look forward to that. But right now it's about finishing it up, finishing up the record, um, hiding up the tracks a little bit, you know, having Adam come in and take take it to the next level. So that's it's a pretty exciting time. I'm going to be out in L.A. in the next couple of weeks to help him, you know, as the final process. So... Yeah, the technical stuff. Some people like it, some people don't. What kind of guitar you play, Johnny? Well, you know what? My favorite guitar to play is a guitar I paid a hundred bucks for at a music shop. It's a '90s Epiphone TV Yellow Double Cutaway Junior, and for a hundred bucks, it's the best guitar I've ever played. Recently, I started playing a Carino Flying V Epiphone. Also, I love my Epiphone. I also get a lot of mileage out of my Les Pauls. For a long, many, many years, I swore by a Les Paul custom black beauty, beautiful guitar. It started to get heavy as I got older. Not to complain or anything, but anyone that's played, you know, heavy 70s Gibson customs, eventually your shoulder starts to wear out. And it's tough to go through an hour-long set jumping around with those guitars. Not to sound old. But any young guy that plays the Les Paul Custom will eventually suffer the same fate. We all do. I'll break it out in the show for a couple songs. But then I like to play the Carina Woods, really like it. A beautiful sound out of the Flying V's and the Junior. So, yeah, that's the technical aspect of it. Now let's get back to the fun. We're talking with Johnny Jensen, and your current single is out for digital download all over the place. I know Apple Music and other places, too. I believe in rock and roll. Where else can people find out more information about you and uh, touring and all that stuff coming up for you? Right. Well, I mean, I think most of the world now is, is tied in with Facebook. You know, I had a website for a while, but Facebook's become the only game in town, hasn't it? 
We're all on Facebook. You can find me there. You can find my music page there, Johnny Jetson. The record's coming out April 20th on Cargo Records, and it will be distributed in Japan, U.S., and Europe, which is pretty exciting. Out of all the bands I've been in, it's been a long time since I've had a physical presence in the music shops. So I'm looking forward to having an actual record LP. Of all the bands I've been in, we've done CDs and we've done 45s and, you know, we've even done cassettes. But I've never had an LP. I'm pretty looking looking forward to having a record of my own to hold in my hands. I love records. I have a pretty big record collection. Collect records. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to having a record in the stores. Um, if you go to Cargo Records, you'll be able to get information on the release and what shops it's in. You can always hit me up. I'm very available. Hit me up on Facebook. If you like the music, if you're wanting something special, we can hook you up. Whether it's a signed CD, signed record, you want a patch, you want a sticker, you know, just hit me up personally. I mean, that's what it's all about. Um, I've been that way since the early days. A lot of artists now totally embrace it, but back in the early days of MySpace, a lot of artists didn't know what to make of it, and they weren't available to their fans. We were one of the first bands that was, like, commenting back, messaging back, wishing people happy birthday. That was unheard of for bands and artists. Now it's the norm. Mm-hmm. You know, but early on, a lot of people didn't reach out that way. Now everyone does. So, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know. Some days I love Facebook for what it does, and some days I hate it. Um, but I have a mailing list also, if you want to get on the mailing list, and I'll mail you a quarterly uh, notice, you know, about what products, you know, what merchandise I have where I'm going to be playing, what to expect from the band. I'm easy to get a hold of. Johnny Jetson, look it up on Facebook, people, and let's rock. Johnny, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Spence, I really appreciate what you're doing. 